You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Multi-factor authentication is key. It's important when it is offered as an option and it's not something that you're required to do. Don't avoid it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Bala Kumar. He is Chief Product Officer at Jumio, and we're talking about fraud in the travel industry. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. We're not talking conspiracy theory when we say it's all connected. When it comes to InfoSec tools, effective integrations can make or break your security stack. Though not as common, the same should be true for security awareness training. Not only does Know Before deliver the world's largest library of security awareness training, but they also provide a way to integrate the various elements of your existing security stack to help you strengthen your organization's security culture. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before about how you can integrate security awareness with your tech stack like never before. All right, Joe, we've got a good bit of follow-up uh, to start off indeed. with here. Uh, I'm going to start things off. Um, in our, I believe our last show we were talking about law enforcement and their ability to track cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And the book I was trying to remember that I couldn't uh, grasp was um, – it's called Tracers in the Dark, and it's written by Andy Greenberg, who certainly we're familiar with, mm-hmm. great uh, – author Andy Greenberg, and um, our CyberWire pal Rick Howard actually interviewed Andy when that book was released. So uh, I recommend if you want to check out that interview, learn more about Tracers in the Dark, uh, go to our website, thecyberwire.com, and you can search for Rick Howard's interview with Andy, and it's uh, good stuff. Uh, we've got some stuff from some listeners here. Uh, Joe, you want me to start things off here, or do I'll, you want to have the honors? I'll read the first one. You can read the second one. Okay. So this one says, Hi, Dave and Joe. My wife just had something interesting happen to her. We never shop at Dick's Sporting Goods. I also don't shop at Dick's Sporting Goods. Probably because I'm not that athletic. <laughs> Fair enough. I was there recently uh, buying lacrosse gear for my youngest son. Ah, I yes. took up lacrosse this The season. Maryland State team sport. That's right. That's, That's right. Right. Uh, But yesterday, she used her American Express card to purchase a gift card from Dick's Sporting Goods for a birthday for a family member. Okay. A family friend, rather. Yep. Uh, It looks like Dick's Sporting Goods uses a third-party platform called BlackHawkNetwork.com when Hmm. purchasing gift cards from the official Dick's Sporting Goods website. Okay. Today, she received several fraud alerts from a different credit card, her Bank of America MasterCard. The Bank of America MasterCard had also been used at Dick's Sporting Goods multiple times successfully before it started getting declined. Hmm. What's going on here? It would have been pretty standard credit card fraud had the same Amex been that she used yesterday been used for the fraudulent transactions, but this is a completely different credit card. Hmm. 
Uh, the best guess I can think of is that the attackers already had my wife's Bank of America credit card from a breach, and they also somehow found out that she made a purchase at DickSportingGoods.com or BlackHawkNetworks.com, and they immediately started using the other credit card, the one they had access to, to also make purchases at Dick Sporting Goods in an effort to make the transactions appear more legitimate. This seems a bit far-fetched, so this might be just a very unlikely coincidence. However, we're a bit concerned that some attacker has more access to her data than is standard, uh, than a standard instance of credit card fraud. Is there a simple explanation? Thanks. Hmm. Um, I don't know. If you're doing yeah. this on a computer, I would definitely scan the computer for malware. Uh-huh. Um, uh, what do you think, Dave? Well, I'm I first, I think it could just be a coincidence. It could be a coincidence. You're That's 100% correct. I possible. forgot to leave out the obvious. Yeah. Or so, to, I left out the obvious there. You know, we're, as we know, our brains are pattern-matching machines, and yes. so they want to connect the, really wants to connect the dots. We often see patterns where there are none. <laughs> right, uh, right. But this is weird that you never shop at Dick's, and all of a sudden— you go and you use an Amex there, and next thing you know, your MasterCard's being used fraudulently at the same location. Right. Uh, I'm assuming this was all online because it says uh, that they went to DickSportingGoods.com. Yeah. I don't know if if that's the case. Matt can uh, Matt is the name of the listener that wrote in. I think I said that already. I don't know, but I'm not going to go back and listen to the recording, Dave, <laughs> until, until this episode comes out. Uh, but anyway... Uh, so, if Matt, if you want to clarify, we'd be happy to hear the clarification. But uh, I think, it, from our standpoint, it looks like a coincidence. Uh, I yeah. wonder where you use the MasterCard last. Well, the other thing I wonder is, do they have any of these credit cards stored in their browser? Yeah, because that That's could good be point. a. If they have the MasterCard in the browser, uh, it's possible. It's plausible that. Perhaps uh, the Dick's Sporting Goods site was compromised or perhaps their browser was compromised. And so it's harvesting that information from the browser. Yeah, maybe we'll see a news story coming out about how Dick's Sporting Goods was compromised. But I doubt it. I mean, that's that's an e-commerce site. Those are pretty standard things. I, I would be surprised to see that come out. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm stumped. I, uh, I mean, Dick's is at that the level, that tier, where you would be surprised to see run-of-the-mill you know, credit card. It's someone injecting some code into their site to steal credit cards. Mm -hmm. That would be unusual. Yes, but not completely out of the realm of possibility, I suppose. Yes, yeah, somebody had contaminated a JavaScript library years ago to do exactly this. Yeah, uh, but I can't remember all the details about it off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I, I think it's mostly a mystery. Um, I'd love to hear if any of our listeners are uh, shouting at their mobile devices right now and saying, I know what it is. I know what it is. Write <laughs> in and let, let us, us know. know. Write in and let us know. Yeah. Uh, thank you for writing in, Matt. Uh, we've got another note from a listener. This is from someone uh, named King who is writing about our discussion of QR codes from episode 243. And they said, in general, I agree with your security concerns about QR codes, but as with so many useful tools... It is not the mechanism itself that is the problem, but our use or misuse of it. Mm -hmm. A QR code is really just a fancy URL, and like hovering over a URL on a web page, I always use a QR code scanner to see what is encoded first. Right. Yeah, and you were mentioning that, Joe. You have yep. tools to do that as well. That's right. Uh, King says there are good uses for QR codes. I agree with Joe. I'm not a fan of reading a menu on my phone. <laughs> yeah, I just saw an article today that said restaurants are doing away with that because people don't like it. Yeah. Good. Okay, <laughs> so, so I'm not in the minority here. No, no, I don't think so. 
the uh, king goes on and says, but COVID caused many restaurants to abandon menus and we do all carry around perfectly usable display devices. Fair enough. Yep. Uh, sometimes the world changes and we old guys just have to deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, that's, sad, but true. Yeah. Man, I hate that. <laughs> no, no, uh, I want the world to remain the same, Dave. Yes, exactly. <laughs> At least until I'm dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. This a friend of mine says, uh, the world is not a museum for you <laughs> to, right. to go visit. Yes. Uh, I'd rather read the menu on my phone than have a server recite it to me, which has happened. Oh, oh that, that would be brutal. Yeah, yeah, I would also rather read it on my phone. <laughs> right. Uh, they say restaurant bills are very convenient to pay via QR code. I've done that. I, I tried to do that this past weekend and it didn't work. Really? Yeah. I've done it a few times. It was an times. Apple Pay thing, and I tried to use the Google system, uh -huh. and I just couldn't get it to work. Huh. Okay. I've done it maybe a few again. times. It, it is convenient. Yeah. Uh, maybe, again, I'm old manning this. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, King says, of course, there are bad uses. A QR code on a gas pump is a terrible use case. Yep. Any placement where you can't know who put it there should not be trusted like a sticker on anything public. Right. Uh, Joe, I was actually out and about, and I was buying some gas the other day, and I took a picture of the collection of QR codes on the gas pump I was using. There's a collection of QR codes in the gas pump? I sent it over to you. I don't know if you can... Uh, I sent it to you via text message. Oh, I, my phone's um, turned off right now for the sake of the podcast. Gotcha. So oh. this is... I, I'm guessing that all of these QR codes are legit, but they are just stickers on right. the gas pump. And there's like a Google Pay one, and there's an Apple Pay one, and there's another one. And yeah, I'm not going to trust those. Right. Like one of them's halfway peeled off, and they, you know, just be one thing if it was screen printed onto the pump, you know, <laughs> like if it looked like this is something that came with the pump itself. But right. these are all just stickers. Yeah. So why would I trust a sticker? Yeah. I mean, my son got a sticker that printed up that it's a QR code that Rick rolls people. Nice. He's going to put it on his car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, King goes on and says a QR code that evaluates to a link shortening service is suspect. Uh-huh. I agree. Yep. Um, the great thing about QR codes is you can encode anything. <laughs> That's true. He says, I love QR codes. They're easy and convenient, but like any digital data, you can't automatically believe they provide legitimate data. Maybe one day QR codes will have a digital signature. Thanks and love the show. Oh, well, thank that's you, a good King. point. Uh, that would be a very large uh, uh, QR code. <laughs> it would make the co codes larger. Right. But uh, King makes an excellent point. You could put any URL into a QR code. Why do you need a link shortening service? You don't. Mm. You don't, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Put a URL to your... To your uh, your website, right, right. Don't don't obfuscate it any more than it is from right. the QR code. It's all want... it's already illegible by humans. Right, right, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, King, for writing in, and also to Matt. We do appreciate it, and of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I'm going to start things off for us here. My story comes from Ars Technica. Uh, this is written by John Brodkin, and it's titled 48 States Sue Phone Company That Allegedly Catered to Needs of Robocallers. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so I, I don't know if your first question about this is the same as mine. Was Maryland one of those states? Well, close. <laughs> I wanted to know who didn't get right, on board. Yeah, who are the two that didn't sue? Right, right. And it turns out it's Alaska and South Dakota. Uh, no idea what those two states have in common, but... Sparse populations. <laughs> they, they did not... Uh, sparse populations, right. They yeah. did not choose to uh, to get on here. This was uh, filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona against a company called Avid Telecom. 
their CEO and their VP of operations. Uh, and this comes from work done by the Anti-Robocall Multi-State Litigation Task Force. Ah, Didn't know there was such a thing, but I'm glad they're out there. Yep. Uh, and they say that this organization sent billions with a B right. of robocalls out and really set themselves up in such a way to make it easy for scammers to use robocalling. Right. And more importantly, the FTC and other organizations contacted Avid Telecom and said, hey, knock it off. In fact, Verizon had cut off, had cut them off from access to Verizon's system. Really? Yeah, because they had sent so many calls. So many scam calls. Yeah, over, according to this article, over 10 million uh, over Verizon. Um, and so the FCC and uh, these attorneys general have gone after them uh, and said, okay, you're not going to listen to us. We've, 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 we've been, we've warned you. Right. right. We have warned you in every possible way. Um, and uh, no, they just kept on at it, kept uh, presumably making a lot of money doing it. Right. Uh, and now 7. these- 7.5 billion robocalls, it says. Right. So these companies are uh, suing them. Actually, that was calls, it says, that's the calls to the phone numbers on the National Do Not Call Registry. Right. So <laughs> it's like that- was absolutely useless. Yeah. So this says, this lawsuit seeks a jury trial, a permanent injunction to prevent additional illegal robocalls uh, and financial penalties, including restitution or other compensation on behalf of residents for illegal calls. Uh, I think this is great. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think this is great. And there's also a part of me that says it's about freaking time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who's next on this list? Yeah. Uh, it's about time that we're seeing real stuff going after these folks. I, I, I have to say, to be fair, um, I they, it seems as though robocalling has been in the crosshairs of some of these uh, government agencies. Um, and this is part of that. So I'm, I'm happy to see this. Uh, too many people have been scammed. This is, it's not just a nuisance. Uh, scammers take advantage of this to be able to reach out to people and actually, you know, steal good money from them. Right. So and, what happens is you have the major providers that uh, that provide all the infrastructure benefits and they're cell providers and, and also local carrier providers as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then you have these other phone companies like this Avid Telecom that are just leasing services from these infrastructure companies. And all they're doing is then providing a bridge and access to their customers. Right. To get on the network for some fee. Right. And these guys have made, it looks like a boatload of money, mm -hmm. letting people just scam Americans out of, I would really like to see if there's, if there's a number on the amount of, uh, of fraud losses that have happened here. Yeah. I don't yeah. think there's there's any way to measure that, but I think that's going to be difficult. But uh, it's it's interesting. It's uh, it would be an interesting statistic to see. Even they come yeah. up with some kind of estimate. You know? They they're in this article. They talk about how these folks, these folks at at Avid, says they facilitated over five billion calls from June 2020 to February 2021 for Sumco, which is facing a proposed 300 million dollar FCC fine for wait for it. Auto warranty scam uh. robocalls. <laughs> <laughs> How big is that fine again? $300 million. Mm, that's nice. And it says the defendants had direct knowledge that Sumco was sending them illegal call traffic. And also talks about how they 
deliberately tried to um, get around the stir-shaken authentication technology that was supposed to, or that has gone into effect to verify the accuracy of caller ID. Right, so they're getting around these, um, the, the technologies that are there. Right, that's, right. The things that are put in place to help protect us from these, uh, the allegations are that these folks were deliberately trying to get around them to continue you know, the, the lucrative business that they were in. That's right. Yeah. So I'm happy to see this. And, Me too. Uh, nice reporting here from Ars Technica and John Brodkin. That's what I have this week, Joe. What do you got for us? Dave, I think this might be the first time in all of Hacking Humans history that we have two feel-good stories today. <laughs> okay. Usually we have something where we go, everybody goes, oh, that's awful. Right. It's some kind of doom and gloom. Right. Okay. But my story is also a, a feel-good story, and it comes from Cole Sullivan from News 9, or 9 News, rather, in uh-huh. Denver, Colorado. Okay. And there is a uh, a resident of Denver who has moved out to the area. His name is Phil Tamchina. And he is buying a house or has bought a house. But while he was buying his house, uh, as we often do, he had to wire money for settlement to a uh, some kind of settlement company. Right. Of course, there was somebody in the chain and he got an email that said, hey, it's time to wire the money. Send the money to this account with these details. Hmm. And he does it. And he says, I didn't inspect it really hard. Uh, yeah. Because I was, I'm very busy. Uh, but the amount of money he sent was 370. I'm sorry, I have that backwards because I'm dyslexic. 730 thousand dollars. Wow. So it's a lot of money. Yeah. Right. And uh, 11 days later, 11 days, Dave. Huh. He finds out that the people that were supposed to receive the money have not received the money, and that his realtor tells him, "It looks like you've been a victim of a wire fraud scam." Mm. And he says he goes numb. Yeah. So he starts looking into it, and he calls the police, and the police have a uh, relatively new detective. Her name is Taylor Hickam, and she gets the case, and she starts tracing it down. And lo and behold, she finds that the the entire sum of $730,000 is still sitting in the bank account at the bank where he sent it. Huh. So they were able to recover all of it. Wow. After 11 days. Huh. Now, Hickam thinks that the detective Hickam thinks that the uh the bank rec- that received the funds said, "Hey, something's fishy here. We're right. going to need to sit on these funds for a little while, hold them, see if anybody comes looking for this because it went to this account that was set up with maybe these parameters here right, or right. something's going on or or maybe they actually found that somebody's account was taken over mm-hmm. and uh and this person logged in and said, uh, there's an unexplained $730,000 in my account, which is entirely possible. Sure. All of these scenarios are possible. Uh, so they just held on to it. They didn't let anybody wire any money out of that account. Hmm. And when the police came looking for it, all of it was still there. Wow. That's what it looks like happened. Hmm. So this guy, Tam, uh, Phil Tamchina, was very, very fortunate. <laughs> Yeah. Because I hope he got his house. He did. Oh, good. He actually did get his house. That, good, the transaction good. did go through. Oh, good. He is in the new house now, I think. Oh. Um, but so it, it's it's great that he um that he that he was able to recover the money. But I want everyone who's listening to understand this was very lucky for Mr. Mm. Tamchina mm-hmm. because we have had story after story after story where that is not what happens. Yeah. And the person is just out the money. Right. And I don't know uh, 
what what Phil Tamchina's financial situation is. You know, maybe uh, seven hundred thirty million dollars or seven hundred thirty thousand dollars is a lot of money, or, or or maybe it's not. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I, I have a couple of things that I'd like to say, and this is for the listener who might be wondering. What if I'm in this situation? What do I do? Mm-hmm. So if you're wiring any amount of money, verify the wiring details with a phone call to a known good number and do not rely on any inbound communication. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to anybody on the phone that calls you and says, hey, we got some new wiring details. We're going to send them, send them to you. Right. Hey, here's an email with your new wiring details. Yeah. And don't use the phone number that's in the email or communication that's asking you to wire Absolutely. the number. Use the phone the, number the money, on the business rather. card of the person. Look up their phone number on the internet. Right. right. Look at look up in a phone book if you still have a phone book. Dave, do you have any phone books in your house? I do not believe I do. Hmm. There might be, who knows? There's probably one hiding under something somewhere or right. maybe propping something up. But When little no, kids come over your time. house, what do they sit on? <laughs> that's right. Wait, wait, that's a good question. Now that phone books are gone, what right. do kids sit on during holidays? Yes. During like Christmas and and uh, Thanksgiving and Easter and um, you know Passover. What, what do kids sit on these days? I don't know. That's a good question. I my all my kids are are too old to, to need to sit on something. Well, that's good. They probably just have booster seats now. Yes, booster seats. Yeah. So pay money for to replace the old right biodegradable phone book. Yeah, there you go. Uh, anyway. Number two, verify that the recipient received the funds as soon as you wire them. Mm. This is something that I'm kind of shocked that uh, Mr. Tamchina didn't do. I know if I was wiring $730,000 to somebody, I'd call to make sure they got it. Yeah. In fact, I was going to wire or send about a thousandth of that to a friend of mine. This <laughs> okay. was to close close out a business, right? That we, right. we had together and I still had about 730 bucks he needed. Uh-huh. Uh, so I called him three times during that transaction. <laughs> right? He was irritated with it. <laughs> yes, Joe, I got yeah, it. The I got money. it. Okay. I, I, uh. Before I said, I, is this the right place I'm going to send it to? Yes, this is the right place. Okay. Right. I'm sending it now. Right. Hey, did you get it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Final call. We're all good, right? <laughs> yep, we're good. So... <laughs> That's just me, though. I mean, yeah. for me, seven hundred thirty bucks. I, I don't even want to have to pay that money twice. Right. No. Oh, sure. Right? So, when you when you when you wire anybody a large any amount of money, I would say call them and ask them that you get it because time is of the essence here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy got really lucky in that the the bank flagged it as fraudulent, but most of the time, you you don't have that kind of time. Yeah. You don't have that kind of time. They're, they're going to try to get that money out of there as quickly as they can. And I'm sure these scammers tried to get that money out as quickly as they could. It's just the bank stopped them. Probably. Yep. Right. They, they, I, I suspect that you're right. And, and so really, in my mind, that makes the bank the hero of this right. story. Yeah. The bank, I think, did, 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 a, uh, did a great job here. And yeah. finally, the, the last point I want to make is if you're going to be the custodian of money that is sent via a wire transfer— so let's say you're a settlement attorney or you're a uh, some kind of bank that's going to, to an escrow company or whatever. Yeah. It is good policy to communicate the wiring details at the very beginning of the process. And then to say something like, these details will not change during the process of this transaction. This is what they will be, and we will keep this account open until such a time as this, at least until we're done here. Right. Right? And if you receive any communication or there's anything that indicates different details, do not wire the money. Stop. Right. Call us. Right. It's fine. 
And here's my phone number printed on this right. document. Here's my phone number printed <laughs> on this business card. Right, right. So it's 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 this is actually something that's fairly easy to stop from happening, but you need to stop it from happening with uh with how you behave. Mm. Uh, and it, it there's there's not a lot of technological things that can prevent you from wiring money to bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, I, settlement is such a a flurry of activity. It is. Right? It's a it's a flurry of activity, and it's very stressful. Yes, it's one of the top five stressful things you can do in your life. <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, you know, probably at the top of the list of important things to do during settlement is the transfer of the funds. Absolutely. And so that requires the highest amount of scrutiny, I would yeah. say. I haven't done this in, I mean, I bought my last house almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we did everything with uh, cashier's checks. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you can still do that. I would imagine you can. Yeah. Um, but if you can do that, I think that's a better solution. Right, right. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. Well, two happy stories this week. Huh? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> now All right. our listeners like, I uh, can't wait for next week. They better have sad stories. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Next time. Yeah. It'll be, I don't know. I don't even want to say. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from William. And when our producer Liz forwarded this to me, uh, Gmail said in bright red letters, this message seems dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Thank you, so, Gmail. Yes. <laughs> so go ahead and read this one, Dave. All right. This says, Dear customer, we recently received a report of unauthorized debit and credit card use associated with this account. As a precaution, we have limited your Chase banking account in order to protect against future unauthorized transactions. To verify your account, click on Secure Your Account below so you could help us confirm your account information and regain full access to your account. Warning, ignoring or giving wrong details mean you are not the rightful owner of this account and we are going to permanently lock your account if such activity is detected. Thank you for being a Chase customer and we look forward to serve all your financial satisfactions. And then there's a big blue button that says, Secure my account. Sincerely, Chase support team. (laughs) So that's Mm. pretty good. I mean, the grammar is almost perfect until the end where it starts getting a little bit sloppy. Almost, yeah. Uh, William writes, as phishing emails go, this one's better than most. The only obvious grammatical giveaway is, quote, financial satisfactions in the final sentence. (laughs) One of my favorite uh, songs from the Rolling Stones. Right. Can't get no financial financial satisfactions. satisfactions. (laughs) Uh, The link... Preview on iPhone shows a Chase login page at a marketing URL. So what huh. that is, is that is some marketing company, or maybe they're complicit, but they've probably been compromised, and somebody has put a phishing uh, page on that uh, on that web server. Right. So it's a phishing kit just catching these credentials. Uh, it is, they don't care whether or not you have a Chase account. If you don't have a Chase account, they're not interested in catching your credentials, mm-hmm. right? So they're sending this out to a bunch of people. Somebody has a Chase account and reads it and goes, oh, I better secure my account, clicks it, and lo- gives gives up their username and password. Yeah. And then the guys are in. And, and the, they're just going to do terrible things to your bank account. The consolidation of the banking industry in the here in the U.S. has made this much easier for right. these people. <laughs> That's there are fewer 100% big banks. correct, Dave. <laughs> that is, you know, this is, uh, th- that's a great point. <laughs> because there aren't a lot of big banks anymore. Nope. Or, you know, there there aren't a lot of banks around here anymore. There's yeah. Chase, there's Wells Fargo, there's Citibank, 
There's uh, Bank of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to think of another one. And I can't. <laughs> it's just a, yeah, there's just a handful. Right. Yeah. So chances are, by picking one of the big banks, you're hitting a very large percentage of the population. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to William for sending this in. Again, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Back to the concept of integrations. Nobefore's Security Coach uses standard APIs to quickly and easily integrate with your existing security products from vendors like Microsoft, CrowdStrike, Cisco, and dozens of others. Security Coach analyzes alerts your security stack generates to identify events related to any risky security behavior from your users. With this information, you can set up real-time coaching campaigns to target risky users based on those events from your network, endpoint, identity, or web security vendors. These campaigns enable you to coach your users at the moment the risky behavior occurs, with contextual security tips delivered via Microsoft Teams, Slack, or email. With 35 integrations and counting, Security Coach delivers the insight you need to improve your organization's security culture. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bala Kumar. He is Chief Product Officer at Jumio. And we were talking about fraud in the travel industry. Here's our conversation. There's been quite a bit of transformation happening, not just in the travel industry, but generally across uh, because of the pandemic. One, there's been a significant drop-off, or there was a significant drop-off in travel. That started to pick up now uh, over the course of the last year or so. It's starting to come back to almost the 2019 levels, but not yet fully there. In addition to that, uh, folks are now starting to get a lot more used to digital transformation. Companies are adopting digital transformation. End users or consumers are used to digital transformation. People are looking for more convenience. Um, And so they are looking for quicker ways for them to be able to either check into hotels or to be able to pick up their cars, uh, to be able to make their way through uh, security uh, controls, etc. So there's that increased uh, need for convenience, um, and companies have been accommodating that through the digital transformation initiatives as well. So these are the two driving factors um, that's that's caused a tipping point in how end users are interacting in the travel industry and generally other industries as well. Fraudsters, though, are now starting to take advantage of this because a lot of these uh, conveniences mean it's uh, being done in faceless channels. So you're not necessarily interacting with an individual. In the past, you would go into the hotel lobby, you would meet somebody, you would hand your hand over your driver's license, your credit card. Uh, they're able to have a conversation with you um, before they check you in. Now you can just go on your mobile app and you can check in uh, to your room and you can make and you have a mobile key that is made available through the app itself, um, or sorry, a digital key, and then you make your way to the to the room. 
Right? So in this faceless channel, uh, fraudsters are getting in and exploiting it significantly. They are taking over end users' credentials. They are passing themselves off as end users. Um, and uh, they are taking over accounts of end users, which means they have access to all the reward points that the end users have gained over a period of time. Um, and that essentially translates to cash as far as the fraudsters are concerned. So that's essentially what you see happening quite a bit, at least from a fraud landscape um, when it comes to uh, the travel industry. And you see a lot of this um, percolating to other industries as well. Can we dig into some of the details here of the ways that they're coming at individuals? I mean, you mentioned you know, coming after their uh, their points, um, is that the main thing they're after here or what other things do they come at? That's predominantly it. Uh, the fraudsters are not looking to travel, uh, but if they're able to get these reward points, they're able to convert that into cash, right? So they can go online, they can trade the points, uh, they can transfer points. Uh, there's a ton of things that they could do with points. Um, and a lot of folks, n- not too many people really keep a close eye on their points. Uh, for example, uh, when my mom traveled here to the U.S. from India, she, you know, because it was an international flight, she gained quite a few points. Uh, but mm-hmm. then she doesn't care about those points. It's sitting in her account. And if somebody hacks into her account, they get access to those points and it's gone. And so the end user is not even aware that one, they had gained all these points and now they've lost it too. Right? So few people keep a very close eye on, on their points. Uh, it's, it's usually the frequent travelers. Um, but if their accounts are uh, compromised, then you're talking about several thousand points that uh, the fraudsters are going to get access to, and that translates to thousands of dollars. So what are the providers doing to prevent this? The the airlines, the, the hotels, what, what part do they play here? Playing a little bit of a catch-up, uh, they are trying to figure out the trade-off between uh, convenience and having the right uh, security controls in place. Um, so there's a combination of efforts. One, you have to make sure that the individual that you are uh, interacting with is genuine, especially in this faceless channel. And then the second thing you have to figure out is, is the ID that they are providing, is that linked to that individual, right? And is this uh, individual using this claimed identity generally in the community? Those are the key things that they need to figure out. Uh, so to do that, um, some of the companies, especially in the airline space, they are leaning on um, government-issued IDs, so driver's licenses, passports, etc., as a means to verify that these are uh, genuine individuals. Because think about it, right? A name, address, email, phone, a ton of these are compromised in today's world uh, because of all the data breaches that have occurred. I guarantee that your information, my information, or some parts of information is out there in the dark web. Um, and so when you see a transaction come through or somebody is submitting a, a request to check in, et cetera, with a name and an address or an email, you have no way of knowing whether it is the actual individual submitting it or if it's a fraudster who has access to it that is submitting it. But the moment you say, hey, great, thank you for this information, we would now like to see a driver's license or a passport or some form of a government-issued ID that introduces friction for the fraudsters. Genuine users, they have the driver's licenses on them or they have the passports and they're able to provide those forms of identity. Uh, But fraudsters don't necessarily have access with the same name, address information on those IDs. Uh, So they can go ahead and try and manufacture it. Not as, it's easy to, but think about the volume of IDs that they're going to have to manufacture. And so uh, a lot of these companies are requiring these IDs to be provided through digital means. And in addition to the IDs, they're also asking 
or selfies, right? So take a picture of yourself. Mm. And so you can match the picture, the selfie that they've taken with the picture that's on the ID. And if you look at an ID, there are multiple security controls on ID. You'll see the actual image, you'll see a ghost image. And so companies like Jumio, uh, there are a few of us that operate in the space, companies like Jumio, we look at um, the selfie, we look at the images on the ID and make sure that it is the same individual. So it's not just a selfie matching within the document itself. There are multiple security controls that are laid into the document. So we check for all of those and make sure that this is a valid ID. Uh, Think about the last time you traveled, you went through TSA, they take your ID and they run it through, they scan it and make sure that it is a valid ID. Uh, We run a lot of very similar checks to make sure that this, this is a genuine ID. So that essentially causes friction for the bad users, for the fraudsters. Uh, and that's essentially one of the primary tool that a lot of companies are using to try and keep the fraudsters out. Do you find that some folks are, are reticent or hesitant to upload their government IDs? It used to be the case a few years ago, uh, but that is changing quite a bit, especially with digital transformation. Um, and this is something that starts early. Even uh, if you take an online exam, whether it's uh, somebody in the university, etc., they are asked to furnish an ID. They want to make sure that this is a, a valid individual. If you take a certified Coursera course, they request, require you to provide an ID, right? So folks over a period of time have started to get comfortable with it. Uh, there was also some concerns around uh, taking selfies and whether people would be comfortable with that. Um, but in the last five, 10 years, uh, especially with the crazy spread of mobile devices, et cetera, and folks uh, actually submitting their photos, et cetera, on social media like Facebook and Instagram and others, they're starting to get a lot more comfortable with it now than they were five, 10 years ago. So I would say that, uh, friction point from an end-user standpoint has uh, dramatically dropped over the last few years. You know, I, I think uh, a lot of people are on board when it comes to things like multi-factor authentication for their bank accounts, you know, those things where they, they see uh, direct and, and ongoing interaction of money. Where do we stand with, with the travel providers here? Do, are, are there opportunities to use things like multi-factor with those organizations? Absolutely. In fact, a lot of them have started to use it. Some of them offer it as an option. Some of this are starting to require it. Um, But some of the tools that are being used are still um, a bit uh, rudimentary. They ask you for, hey, what is the color of your car? Or uh, which school did you go to, et cetera? And these are canned Mm -hmm. responses, something that the end user keyed in when they set up their account. Um, and the challenge with that is uh, not everyone remembers what they put in uh, a year or two years ago when they uh, set up their account. Um, then there's the whole issue of, is it uppercase? Is it lowercase? And so the, that that in itself introduces quite a bit of friction. When, when you're setting up an account, if you uh, ask for a driver's license or a passport, if you've asked for a selfie, now um, we basically can have a signature of that selfie that was taken. So when that individual comes back, when you want to do that multi-factor authentication or additional authentication, you ask them just to take a selfie, a quick selfie. And if it matches what we have on file, you can green light them and you can let them through the door. Um, So those mechanisms are being adopted. A few companies have started to move in that direction uh, because it gives you a much more of a foolproof way of protecting those accounts. So what are your recommendations for consumers here? What are the best practices for them to, to make sure that they're protecting themselves? I think you nailed it just a few minutes ago. Multi-factor authentication is key. It's important when it is offered as an option and it's not something that you're required to do. Don't avoid it. Sign up for it. Make sure that you're using multi-factor authentication. 
your um, your rewards account is not really different from your bank account. Um, yes, it's um, it's not real money unless you convert it, but it is still it still translates to something meaningful. A lot of uh, folks can travel, can get a ticket for free if they're using the reward points to even make international trips, right? And that's a substantial amount of money. Uh, so you have to take, you should take the same precautions that you would take to protect your bank accounts, uh, sign up for multi-factor authentication, make sure that you're signing up for an authentication mechanism that is strong um, and not something that can be easily guessed. Uh, so if it is things like which school did you go to and that information is already available on your LinkedIn or your Facebook profile, guess what? Process would have access to it. So make sure that you're signing up for an authentication mechanism that is uh, that is strong and is going to secure your accounts. Joe, what do you think? Dave, the pandemic did cause a lot of people to go with this more digital transformation, right? This is just automation, right? Okay. It's automation uh, that users can use. Yeah. That customers can use. Sure. And people like it. Yeah. And I get it. The fewer people I have to interact with, the happier I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You just want true. to stay in your hobbit hole and I do. just be left alone. I do. Yes. <laughs> to some Fair, enough. Fair enough. Um, although I do, I do enjoy checking in a hotel and talking, talking to the people at the hotel. So I guess, I, I, you know, I've never had an unpleasant experience doing that. And a lot yeah. of times everybody in the hospitality industry is so great. I, right. I mean, that's why they're there. Sure. Um, but of course, this whole automation system or all these digital transformations or whatever are now just a new attack surface for someone to come in. Right. Uh, that is one of the things that I talk about frequently is reducing your attack surface. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a good business case for this attack surface to exist. There is, yeah. obviously. Yeah. People like it. Uh, it does provide a frictionless experience for somebody coming into a hotel. I can imagine coming into a hotel room late at night yeah. As I've done frequently and not having to go to the front desk, just on my phone, have an app that lets me into my room. That right. sounds great, actually. I actually, last time I checked into a hotel, it was uh, when we went to San Francisco for the RSA conference. Our hotel had a completely automated check-in service with a little kiosk and it was great. Awesome. Yeah. Saved a lot of time too because there was a long line for the, you know, the actual human uh, check in, right? Or, you know, and, and people who have an issue or actually need to talk to a human, but for just plain old check in, worked great. And did it spit your keys out or what? Yeah. You, okay. Yeah, it generated the keys. It, it did check my ID. It did all that stuff. Huh. So, yeah, it was great. Good, good, uh, smooth experience. Just, just worked. Very nice. Yeah. The, you know, this is like when you go to the Southwest counter in the airport at BWI. Yeah. And it's just all automated machines. Right. And you don't have to talk to anybody unless you have to drop off luggage. Right. You know? Yeah. That's always a smooth transaction too. Yeah. Uh, when it's, it's nice when it is done well and it works. Yeah. And I, I'll say Southwest does a pretty good job there. Yeah. Although I still think I want to talk to people. But you know yeah. what? I'm not going to talk to that many people and still get cheap airfare. <laughs> right. There you go. There you go. Naturally, the bad guys are going to try to monetize their efforts. Anytime they're, anytime they're, that's, I mean, that's what they do. That's, yeah. that's what the, uh, every year, the, the Verizon data breach, and uh, the Verizon report, VDBR, mm -hmm. data breach investigation report, DBIR, um, comes out and it says that like something like 90% of all cybercrime is financially motivated. Mm -hmm. That is probably never going to change. Now that <laughs> we're here, it's, I, I can, I can see it going to almost 100%. Um, there's still going to be other reasons, but they're going to be the real minority. So 
they're going after points if they can turn that into cash. And that's great. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a very low risk for the bad guys mm-hmm. because some people just don't care if they lose $2,000 in points or 2,000 points. Right. Right. That's not $2,000. That's 2,000 points. It's not a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, I looked at my, speaking of Southwest, I, I looked at my Southwest after this interview. I goes, I wonder how many points I have. I have a substantial amount of points. Hmm. I can do a round trip from here to Dallas and back with my points. Oh, that's nice. It is. I have no idea where I stand with any of my airline points. It's just, I'm one of those people who I'm not particularly interested in it. So I, I who knows? I, I could have a lot. I have no idea. Free trips, Dave. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I should look into it. But, you should. But, but I'm one of those people also where I would not know if my points were taken. Yes. Just wouldn't know, wouldn't lose sleep over it. Yeah. I, Bala's very serious about the rewards points, and it, understandably so. Yeah. But I don't really see someone, I don't really have a problem with someone who goes, I, this is not in my risk portfolio. I'm not worried about this. Right. Uh you know, I don't care about that because you know, Bala's own mom said she doesn't care. Yeah. Right? I don't know. It, th- this is something that I I, I don't think of. Would, you, nobody would think it would be a big loss if they lost their, their traveler's points unless they're really into that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. If you're really into that sort of thing, protect it. Use the multi-factor authentication. Yeah. Um, I like that uh, Bala says companies need to have a multi-layered approach to fighting the fraud. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Uh, he also talks about the knowledge-based authentication that is always terrible. Uh, it's very easy to find the knowledge, and you have no way of knowing if the user is going to remember it when they come back. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Who knows what they put down? Yeah. <laughs> um, asking for IDs and selfies creates a lot of friction for the scammer. People are more willing to do it now. I, I wouldn't have problems with selfies, but if somebody wanted me to upload my ID just for, just so I could use my uh, my frequent flyer points, at that point in time, I might be like, okay, I don't care about this much. Mm-hmm. You know, because now, now I'm putting my uh, ID, uh, if they're using another company whose security is focused, or, or whose focus is security, rather, yeah. then, okay, maybe. Right. Right. But- if I'm just going to give my ID to uh, Southwest for them to store it, I don't know that I would trust them with that much PII. I mean, there's a lot of PII on the uh, on my ID. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. But do they already have that? I don't know. Probably do. Probably. So maybe it's maybe it's okay. <laughs> I mean, they have to know my name, my address, my, my, I don't know, they need to know my address, but they need to know my birth date. Right. Well, there's all this stuff they have to verify just for TSA. Yeah, just uh, to give me a ticket. Yeah, yeah. So they're they are in possession of a lot of information yeah. about us. So maybe it's not a bad idea. For sure. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, you know that already exists. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Bala Kumar for joining us. Uh, he is chief product officer at Jumio, and we do appreciate him taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Before. They are experts at enabling a fully integrated approach to security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. 
The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 